Tonight's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are in this series where we're asking the question, what can monks teach us about spiritual growth? And last week, uh, we introduced the first practice of monastic spirituality. And uh, we might pop that up there. Uh, or maybe that's the one that we, the first practice is fixed our prayer. And we talked about how monks will stop uh, what they're doing many times during the day to pray. And I shared with you that millions of Christians around the world have adopted that practice to stop and pray morning, noon, and evening. Tonight, I want to look at this practice of spiritual friendship. Um, When you join a monastery, you become part of a spiritual family. And if we could put the other uh, slide up there, those are the the brothers at the Monastery of Christ in the Desert, the family there. And uh, when a monk takes vows, and there's about 10 others that are in the practice of, in the process of becoming monks, and you notice this monastery, there are brothers from all over the world. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that happens after you take your vows is they give you a new name. And the reason why is they want to indicate that they want you to understand that you are now related to a family in a new way, and, and you're called brother, and nuns are called sisters. And it's their way of saying, uh, even though we all have biological families and love them, we are now part of a new spiritual family. Now, monastic writers describe the kind of relationships monks can have one another as a spiritual friendship. And here's the idea. Everyone wants to be loved and to love. Married people uh, often, not always, love and are loved in their families. Single people can meet these same needs through spiritual friendships, deep, faithful, enduring connections among brothers and sisters in the church family. Now, whether we intend it or not, single Christians often get the message that they are second-class citizens in the church. They hear a subtle or not-so-subtle message that being married and having kids is the most fulfilling way to follow God. And if you are not married with children, you are somehow incomplete. And we don't usually write that on our website, but we uh, have ways of expressing it. A friend of mine I uh, was talking to about this, and she said, you know, she's single. She said, I was pray- playing the game of life with my niece. And we were playing around about an hour, hour and a half. Those games just take forever. Do they? <laughs> Who invented the game of life? I hate it. But anyway, she said, eventually it dawned on me, I had to get married and have a child in order to finish the game. Now, what's the message there? You can't win the game of life by yourself. You can't do it. Another friend, I was talking about this, and she said that 
she was visiting a church one day, and the pastor, who she didn't know, asked all the singles in the congregation to stand up, and they did. And then he proceeded to pray for them one by one that they'd be married. So would all the singles... No, we won't. Um, another friend told me about the time her church uh, be began a new Sunday school class called Pairs and Spares. True story. Another friend noted, single friend, she said, whenever I start to date someone, even if they're an idiot, people get excited for me. <laughs> Do they really think it's better to be married than, to an idiot than to be alone as a single? Well, obviously, the Bible celebrates marriage and children, but it does not teach that the nuclear family is the only or best way to live a fulfilling life. In fact, the New Testament redefines the definition of family in radical ways. When Jesus comes and preaches the kingdom of God, one of the things he talks about is this new community, this new family that he's forming. And he teaches us to think about the family in an expanded way. Now, we, we read uh, Matthew 12 tonight. And there, Jesus' mother and brother come looking for him. They send a messenger into the room. The messenger says, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers want to see you. And Jesus says, well, who is my mom? Well, who is my brother? And then he points to the disciples, the people listening to his teaching, and, and he says, these are my mother and brothers. Anybody who does the will of my father, that's my mother and my brother. That is a very, very powerful statement. He's expanding the definition of family to those who do the will of the father. Now, the Apostle John puts it like this. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Beloved, we are God's children now. So it's the same idea that when you have faith in Christ, when you put your trust in Christ, you are brought into a new spiritual family with a new father, God. And Paul builds on this teaching. Galatians 4, 5, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so we might receive adoption as sons. What's he saying? Is that when you come to Christ, you are adopted into a new spiritual family. God is the father of the family. And so Paul says in all of his letters, he calls them brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. Then in, in one of his last letters, he says to Timothy, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. So he, he's not 
rejecting the biological family. There's lots of good scriptures in Ephesians and Corinthians and other places that talk about the importance of the marriage and children and childbearing and the nuclear family. What he is doing is he is expanding the definition of family to include all who follow the Lord. And we become brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, aunts and uncles, grandmas and grandpas, all to one another. Now, when you become a monk, you're entering a certain kind of spiritual family. The monk in his choice of celibacy in saying yes to the call, the invitation. Oh, I do think we have a slide for this. Sorry. Um, that might be slide three. The monk in his choice of celibacy in saying yes to the call, the invitation to embrace the life of a monk, chooses to be a friend of the friend, to make that friendship the central reality of his life, and he enters a community of friends, a school of love, in order to learn through friendship how to be a friend. Now, some of the most eloquent writing in the history of church on friendship comes from monks. Um, here's from a, a book written in the 12th century by a monk named Alred of Raveau. He says, It is such a great joy to have the consolation of someone's affection. Someone to whom we are deeply united by the bonds of love. Someone in whom our weary spirit may find rest. And to whom we may pour out our souls. Someone whose conversation is as sweet as a song in the tedium of our daily life. Now that kind of relational connection is not just for monks, of course. That is what the spiritual family is supposed to experience Married people, single people, enrich friendship with one another. Now, Wesley Hill is a New Testament professor and a, a gay Christian who has chosen to follow God in celibacy. And he wrote a book called Spiritual Friendship in which he uh, begins by, by wondering aloud how his needs for love and his need to love will be met in the years ahead. He says, I began to have a recurrent picture of myself at age 60, coming home to an empty apartment, having lived all my adulthood as a single man. I started to think about the particulars of that scenario, not knowing each year where I'd be for Christmas, waking up each morning to a quiet bedroom and having no one across the table from me as I ate my cereal before heading to work, coming home at the end of the day and reading a book with no one to talk to about the parts of it that stood out to me. I began to resonate with what Lauren Winter has called the loneliness of the everyday, the loneliness of no one knowing if your plan lands on, plane lands on time, of no one to call if you lock yourself out of your house or your alternator dies. I find that loneliness worse than the loneliness that comes as a result of a breakup or a divorce. My primary question over time became a question about love. Where was I to find love, and where was I to give love? And his answer in the book is in the church, um, cultivating spiritual friendships in the Christian family. And he acknowledges about how hard and elusive that reality is, and frankly, how terrified he is of trying to pursue celibacy when a church doesn't have a very good track record 
of loving single people that way. But singles aren't the only people that are asking this question. I think married people ask, ask this question of how am I to love, how am I to receive love, uh, because marriage is not designed to fulfill all of a person's relational needs. If I'm sitting in premarital counseling and a young woman with a big smile on her face, and it could easily be the young man says, you know, finally I've found the one who is going to meet all my needs now. I'm just so thankful. I think you're really in trouble. Um, Because God embedded marriage in the broader community of the church. A husband and a wife were never meant to, to bear that strain. We need brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, mothers and fathers, grandmothers and grandfathers, because it's God's design. And I know this gets tricky. Uh, it gets very, very tricky. And we've got to be very, very careful here. And this is why when I was in seminary, the, the people that trained me told me to follow the Billy Graham rule. And the Billy Graham rule is that you uh, never eat alone with a woman, meet alone with a woman, drive in a car alone with a woman, uh, or talk to a woman really about anything of significance for fear that you'll commit adultery. And believe me, I understand the concern. My senior year of seminary, three of the most famous pastors in the evangelical world came and preached. A year later, they were all out of the ministry because of adultery. And so I understand the Billy Graham rule. Well, there's been a little bit of a debate on, on, on the blogosphere about the Billy Graham rule. And I thought I'd read part of one blog by a pastor named Ty Gregg who wrote it in July of 2014. Billy Graham had a rule that he wouldn't meet, travel, or eat with another woman. came to be known as the Billy Graham rule and has been widely embraced by evangelicals over the past 60 years to prevent infidelity or the appearance of evil. Though women did not create this rule, they've borne the burden of it. In churches where women's voices are too often marginalized, this rule separates women from receiving or giving ministry to anyone other than a woman. It short-circuits dialogue, mutual relationship, access, and mentoring across genders. The image of God expressed in male and female genders has been split. And by the way, the Billy Graham rule has not been effective at curbing infidelity. (laughs) And then he gives horrible statistics. Um, The best reason why we might challenge the Billy Graham rule is that Jesus didn't follow it. He talked to the Samaritan woman at the well. He was left alone with a woman caught in adultery. He appeared to Mary Magdalene alone in the garden post-resurrection. Boundaries in relationship are essential, but when the boundaries become the focus, the relationship turns into an abstraction. We dehumanize the other gender to protect the boundary. And as a male pastor, I communicate fear when I tell a woman to leave the door open when she comes to my office. I communicate fear when I tell a woman that we can't meet because there are not enough people around. Um, now, a year later, Tullian Chavidian, who was the grandson of Billy Graham, had an affair and stepped down from his megachurch. And the blogosphere blew up again, saying, see, he needed the Billy Graham rule. And this pastor writes uh, a response. I don't think men, especially white men, understand the damage done when someone's body is treated as threatening. So it would seem that we have two values in competition with one another. Do we value the sanctity of marriage and preserving fidelity, or do we value the full inclusion and dignity of women in the church? We don't have to sacrifice one for the sake of the other. Leaving behind the Billy Graham rule is often interpreted as having no boundaries. 
This rule is so ingrained in our psyche that we can't imagine another possibility for discerning boundaries. Boundaries exist in every healthy relationship. But rather than a preset universal rule mostly enforced by men for women, boundaries can be mutually discerned case by case based on a myriad of relational factors such as history, trust, context, and gender. I wonder, have we lost so much trust in our own virtue that we cannot consider this kind of encounter as safe? Keeping men and women from being alone together will only treat the symptom but not address the heart. Would it not be a better strategy if men developed the kind of virtue that transformed how they see and relate to women? I know many will continue to say that I'm being naive, but doesn't Jesus prohibit even the lustful look? The Billy Graham rule is the church white-knuckling the brokenness between the genders. It would not have saved Tullian from an inappropriate relationship. What Tullian needed, what we all need, is a deeper healing, a new way of seeing women and men, a new way that is made possible in Christ. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because so often I have had single women particularly say to me, I am so tired of being judged when I talk to the husband of somebody's wife in a public space with no ill intent at all. I need brothers. Now, I don't want us to be naive. If you've had an affair, if you know somebody that's had an affair, committed adultery, you know how painful this can be. It can destroy a church. There's a reason why when they came to me when, we were, when they were designing the upstairs, they said, what kind of door do you want? And I said, glass. We don't need to be dumb about this. But if we're really a spiritual family and mothers and brothers and sisters and all of those things, it seems like we, we've got to go beyond the Billy Graham rule. Well, there's much more we could say about that. But I want to move on now. What can we learn from the monks about becoming a healthy family of spiritual friends? There's much that we could say about this. Uh, but I want to briefly look at three, uh, three principles from the monastery. The first is stay around. Monks call this stability. And they see it as essential to building spiritual friendships. When you go to my monastery, the, de- the graveyard is right outside the... Uh, uh, where the monks live. And there's a reason why. is because they want the monk every day to know two things. A, you're dying. B, you're staying. <laughs> it, it's the Hotel California, right? You know I mean, you can <laughs> check in, but you may never leave. And they take that very seriously. Uh, St. Saint, Saint Benedict says, And so we are going to establish a school for the service of the Lord, never departing but persevering in the monastery according to his teaching and will share in the sufferings of Christ. Now, how how is the monk supposed to suffer in the monastery? Are they supposed to lash each other like in the movies? No. Is it the terrible food? No, the fresh bread's awesome and they also make beer. No. How do you suffer in a monastery? The other people in the monastery. Take 30 bachelors, put them in the desert, and ask them to live together for 40 years. 
and you get a lot of sanctification going on. One of the keys to it working is that you decide you're going to stay around. Wesley Hill uh, talks about this a little bit in his book at the end of it. And he says, um, sorry, my wife tells me not to lick my fingers, but I've got this thing tonight. So, um, so he says, well, I lost it. It was a great point there. Um, but essentially, what, what, what I deleted it, but what Wesley Hill says is, as a single man, I get close to you as a couple, I get close to you as a family, and then you leave me. And I get close to you as a single friend, and then you get married, and you leave me. And, and he understands that, you know, life is mobile, and God does call us different places, but he said, could we at least start to consider when we decide to, to leave a community or leave a city, relationships. Would you, would you at least consider saying no to that job, saying no to leaving the church, saying no to moving 30 miles away for a nicer house because it might affect your relationships? Would you at least consider that is what he's saying. I think it's a good... It's a good question. So what would it look like for you to stay with your friends for life? What would it look like for you to get married and still stay connected with some of your dearest single friends? That's the first principle. The second one that comes out is listen to the young. Chapter 3 of the Rule of St. Benedict. Whenever any important business has to be done in the monastery, let the abbot call together the whole community. The reason that we have said that everybody in the community should be called for counsel is that the Lord often reveals to the younger what is best. Isn't that interesting? And this is a, you know, fifth century hierarchical culture, and if you've read the rule of St. Benedict, or if you ever did, you'd see that it's a lot of authority, a lot of hierarchy, a lot about wisdom and the abbot and top-down kind of stuff. But then in the middle of all of it, he says, and by the way, God's voice will likely come from the youngest members in the community. And I think that's really, really, really important to, to being a family together. Of course, it's important for older members to invest in younger members, and hopefully we do learn some things with age. But I just have this sense, and I know many of you share it, that God is showing some of the younger people some things about the church and the future of the church and the mission of the church that I can't see. And that your generation has a voice for our church. And we need to figure out and make sure that we're discerning it if we're going to be a healthy family. The last principle we'll look at tonight we'll call cherish the aged. The most tender chapters in the rule of St. Benedict instruct the community on caring for the sick and the elderly. Uh, Before all things and above all things, care must be taken of the sick so that they will be served as if they were Christ in person. And then he says of old men, let their weakness be always taken into account, 
and let them by no means be held to the rigor of the rule with regard to food. On the contrary, let a kind consideration be shown to them and let them eat before the regular hours. Bruce, if we could go back to that slideshow uh, of the picture of the monks. Um, the, the, the Japanese monk with the sunglasses in the front. This picture was probably taken about three years ago. And as I've been going out there, um, have, have gotten to gradually watch him age. And when we first got there, he, he, he's kind of, he was bent over and he would just kind of shuffle in for prayer, but he was always there. Then the next time we went, I noticed that he could shuffle into prayer, but he couldn't see the prayer book anymore, and he couldn't sing, but he was always there. And then the last time, if I recall, he was in a wheelchair, and one of the younger monks would wheel him around. But he was always there. One of the things I love about monastic communities is they know how to die. They know how to age well. And I think of all the old people sitting in that tower a couple miles away from here watching some inane TV show. And then I think about that little Japanese monk. As his capacities diminish, the abbot gives him roles. He still works five hours every day. He might be putting a tube on a toothpaste, but he still has a job. And he's still praying. And someday they're going to have a glorious funeral for him. It's very clear that this aging monk is loved and has a place in his community. I think as a spiritual family, it's really, really important how we think about caring for one another as we age. When I first moved to town here, there was a very prominent gifted pastor who'd been pastoring a large church for many years, and he finished, and he moved to Florida. And I, and I wrote him, and I said, I said, um, Pastor Don, why, why are you in Florida? We, we need you here. And he wrote back and he said, nobody wants to hear what I have to say anymore. And he died a few years later, as far as I can tell, alone in a Florida retirement home. That's kind of how we do this. We, you know, we kind of put you out the pasture so we can, you know, get you out of the way. Uh, Alan Anderson was one of the first members at All Souls, and I remember having a cup of coffee with him on the strip. The day Alan retired as a surgeon was the day he found out he had pancreatic cancer. And he had all these plans for he and his wife, Karen, what they were going to do. And that day he realized, I mean, he was a doctor. He knew what was coming. But Alan made a choice. Alan gave us a gift as a community To invite us into his death. It took a long time. It took two, three years. Alan didn't hide from us. He came as long as he could come. And one of the highlights of my life at All Souls and maybe my spiritual life, we had a men's retreat. This was very early on. And Alan couldn't really walk anymore, but his wife, Karen, drove him out to the men's retreat. Some of the young guys went down, got him, brought him up the mountain, sat him in the middle of a circle, and we sat around and asked Alan what it was like to die. It was an incredible, incredible experience. Well, I'll end by just pointing this out. 
I've read a lot of literature over the years on monastic life and monastic friendship. And a lot of it celebrates the richness of this kind of community, but a lot of it warns of the dangers of spiritual friendship. Albert of Raveau wrote, Friendship is the most dangerous of all of our affections. And the writers are aware of two problems, and they warn against them a lot. And I think they're, they're probably problems that we need to be aware of too. The first is the possibility that relational intimacy will become sexualized. And it's interesting, if you study this historically, the normal way the monks handled this was the Billy Graham rule. I mean, they didn't know Billy Graham yet, but I mean, that was the idea. Is they just said, nothing, cutting it off. No intimacy, no deep friendship. Well, again, this is worth much more conversation, and I want us to be very careful here. However, in today's hookup culture, the church has an opportunity to witness how to, a man and a woman can live as a brother and sister in a non-sexualized way. Our culture does not know how to do that. And the church community ought to be a place where we learn how to have non-sexualized brother and sister relationships. I realize lots of things we need to be careful here. We can work all that out in our community. But I think there's a potential there. The second problem the monastic writers worry about is that one person will become so attached to another that the relationship will become unhealthy. And I think today we call that codependence. And honestly, I read a lot of letters from monks this week, and a lot of them made me go, <laughs> they, they, they sounded pretty codependent. And I think that's why the problem was addressed so often. Alred de Raveau says, The right kind of friendship between us should begin in Christ, be maintained according to Christ, and have its end and value referred to Christ. So here's the test. When the other person in your life takes the place of Christ, you've committed idolatry. Well, what's the, the solution or how do we avoid that? Well, I think it's what we've been saying all night. Friendships are supposed to be lived out in the context of the broader community. So if your relationship with that other person, that's all you've got in your life. That's all that matters. That's where all your energy goes. You're in trouble. Back off. And invite the rest of the community into the relationship to help you untangle, sort it out, step back, and meet relational needs in other healthier ways as well. Let's pray.